It's not about taking away everything you've done before and starting new. It's about reshaping the puzzle of yourself. Welcome back to the podcast. You're listening to Let It Out. I'm your host, Katie Dalebout. Today's guest is the creator of the literary magazine One Word, which is a collection of works from notable creative writers about their personal interpretation of one word. In the first issue, that word was perception. And in the most recent issue, that word is influence. And the creator of this magazine is on the podcast today. Jacob Marin. And I met Jacob through his mom, actually. She happens to be one of my favorite writers ever, Danny Shapiro, who will someday be a guest on this podcast. But if you aren't familiar with Danny Shapiro's work, you will get to know her a little bit in this episode. And I highly recommend all of her books, many of which are memoir and therefore Jacob is a character in them which we touch on a little bit in this episode but we also talk about what it was like to grow up with two creative people writers as parents how he developed his own literary taste as my youngest guest we talked a little bit about the differences generationally especially with social media he gives some really great advice on friendship that stuck with me near the end. We talk about anxiety a little bit. We bond over our only childness and we get into talking about the space between making art and living life and getting to know people outside of their art. He recommends a ton of great books and writers and he's just, he's a gem. He's really, really wise and I admire him a lot and he he really taught me a lot in this episode, and I think he's just a really cool person. So I'm excited for you to get to know him. This is his first podcast, and I will talk to you guys at the end. I have a slew of announcements, so stay tuned. I'll give you some likes and learns. And thank you so much for listening. As always, it means so much to me. And if you like this podcast, subscribe, share it with a friend. You know the drill support the sponsors, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for doing this. Like I said, I found you through your mom, who I love her work so much, and I was so excited to hear about your zine and now meet you, and I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? I weirdly feel like I know a bit about your childhood because I've read your mom's book. So I at least know little bits about you, but it, it's going to be kind of cool for me to hear it from you. Yeah. So I was born in New York um, and I don't really remember that part of my life, <laughs> obviously, but I grew up in a small town in Connecticut where my parents moved out of when we uh, moved out of the city to the country. And I immediately started at a school that I went to for 10 or 11 years. I was called Washington Montessori. Um, and I was there, it was, um, a 20 minute drive from our house. So it was a lot of time in the car. 
Um, none of my friends really lived close to me throughout my childhood. It was oh, you know, wow. 20 to 30 minutes, almost anywhere. So anytime I'm in New York, it's just, you get on a subway and I'm yeah like with friends instantly, which is really nice. But I, when I grew up, it was much more of a experience where I would, since I was an only child, I would drive with my parents to go to a friend's house. But most of the time I was just at my house and I wasn't a big reader. So it wasn't like I was spending my time when I was alone throughout my childhood, just sitting with books. Yeah. And I kind of skipped the whole YA thing too. <laughs> I skipped children's books for the most part. And I didn't really start reading until I was 16 or 17. But when I was alone, I mostly watched movies with my dad and my parents and I were always close and still are and have been throughout my childhood and now. Um, so with my childhood, it was much more of a, in terms of my solitary experience, it wasn't like sitting alone with a book or like sitting and watching movies. It was really just being with my parents for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I also am an only child. Do you feel like that's a defining characteristic in your personality now that you're around friends and more of an adult? I would say so. I mean, especially because I feel like I know what to do with myself when I'm alone, Yeah, which I didn't know would be a pro of being an only child, but it was when I got to college, especially. And especially in New York, too, because I feel like since I've been in New York this summer, I've gone to a movie by myself or go out to dinner. And it was really because of the way I was raised. And I knew that my parents were always there with me, but they also knew that and I'd watched my dad, like, you know, he spent 19 years in Africa. So a lot of his experience was solitary and I would, he'd come back and he'd, I'd always see pictures of him. He'd kind of do everything by himself. And he was so independent that I kind of wanted to be independent like him in some way. So I've really always felt like this sense that because I was an only child and especially now, I think when I was growing up, it was sometimes upsetting because a lot of my friends had siblings. Mm -hmm. So my best friend, well, my best friends were twins mm -hmm. throughout my childhood and they would always come over for the night and then they would leave. And I would remember this just sense of dread mm. and sense that I was kind of alone and I didn't have like a companion with me always. Yeah. And it didn't really hit me until I was, you know, 16, 17. And when I was really independent and, not in Connecticut anymore every day. And I was in school and I was with my friends and this guy left home to go to boarding school when I was 14. I think that being an only child, I carried that with me. And I think, especially now I find myself really happy that I was raised as an only child. Not only that I had my parents to myself, but the fact that I think I have always been more of an independent person because of it. It's funny. People would always ask me and I'm wondering if they asked you like, oh, do you like being an only child? And I think it's such a weird question because we don't know any different. Like we'll never know what it was like to have siblings and to say I wanted siblings as a kid. I don't know if I actually did. I don't, I don't really, I'll never know what that experience was like. And so I think now that I'm getting older and spending time with my parents as they're getting older, I am sad that's the one thing that I think kind of sucks about being an only child is that our parents aging and our parents just under seeing our parents, we've known to talk to our parents about like a boyfriend of mine had a sister and they would like laugh about their parents together and they understood their parents in a way that like we'll never have a 
camaraderie with someone about, like no one quite, and just to like talk about childhood with that was there, you know, no one for that. It's, I think that's the really kind of the only downside, but I definitely think there's characteristics. Like my friend had a only child party where she invited only, only children. And the food was like individual pizzas or something. And then she like asked questions and she was like, how many of you did musical theater? And like everybody's hand went up, you know? And so it was just like, it's funny. These things are kind of insidious. And like the more only children I talk to, I'm like, oh, yep, yep, yep. Like it's, it's interesting. And I think I'm finding it more I think the piece about just like being around adults a lot as a kid, like I always joke that I was like raised on an adult farm. Like I just, I was kind of 30 when I was 12 and like, I've just kind of stayed here, you know? Yeah. And I feel, I, I think especially that feeling of being an adult when you're young was something I definitely struggled with. And sometimes I think about now too, because there's a sense that when I'm with mostly adults, then when you're around your friends that are similar age as you, they hold this community of growing up as a teenager Mm -hmm. and being only with teenagers and, you know, yelling at their parents all the time. And I don't think I ever had these like massive fights with my parents Yeah, because I grew up, you know, with my mom, especially that she would travel for work mostly. We never really, as a family, would take these, you know, vacations mm-hmm. they were they were vacations for me and my dad right. mostly for my mom it was work right uh, but I remember growing up that we would go you know all around the United States I would go to Siren Land which is their writers conference in Italy I went with them every year uh, except for two since they started when I was seven years old which was in you know 2008 I think so I remember there is always this feeling that I remember even with so with inheritance coming out for my mom we should say your mom is author Danny Shapiro <laughs> uh, there you go so when her book came out, we, you know, I was with a friend in New York staying at his house. So he came with me to my mom's event. And all of a sudden, you know, we're talking and I'm interrupted by one of my mom's friends who is like, oh, Jacob, good to see you. And then I talked to them for a while. because, And that really was, at least the roots of that were because of growing up as an only child, being in these different writers conferences and different locations that I got to know some amazing well-known writers and also some of my parents' friends. And I knew them as friends and not as, you know, great, incredible writers like I do now. So when I went to my mom's event and my friends kind of saw me like with, this is the atmosphere that I've grown up with. Yeah. Instead, they look at it and they're like, wow, Jacob kind of has to be, you know, has to be social or interact with, Adults, because it, it is for a lot of people um, growing up and being a teenager, it's like, oh, I have to t- be with the adults. I have to be at dinner with them. For me, it was always this joy to get to know my parents' friends because totally. they were all these, you know, incredible literary figures and, yeah. and amazing friends of my parents. What was growing up with two writers like? Did you know that you wanted to be, you said you didn't really start reading until later. So did you know that you wanted to work and you a writer and a curator, and I know you're also an actor and into theater. So tell me about kind of your trajectory and what you're studying. Because you're a freshman and you're 17, right? Going into, no, I'm 20. 20. So I'm going into my sophomore year of college at Wesleyan. I really have tried to have an, a complete open mind with what I studied. And that was kind of the purpose of going to a liberal arts school was the idea that I could study absolutely everything I wanted to from government to film to English. 
I took an anthro class, gender studies. You know, I, I think being able to spread myself out because in high school, so I really smart. did spread myself out. I was yeah. in theater. I was a dorm leader, student tutor. I was on varsity tennis. So I was trying to do a little of everything. So athletics, academics, and arts. So when I got to college, when it was more of a less arts and music, and at least the arts becomes an academic focus more or less when you get to college. I think that I wanted to try a little bit of everything the first few semesters. So originally I was saying, okay, I'm going to major in English and minor in film. And that was my first thought about what I wanted to do in college. Mm -hmm. And then I took my first film course and I was like, no, no, major in film. Because it was one of those classes, I think, that changes some of the trajectory of my life. It was, wow. it was that incredible of a class. Tell me uh, about the class a little bit. What did you, what did you learn? What did you watch? See, so this class was my first semester. It was called, which I forget the exact term, but it was, uh, it was about technologies of Hollywood and, and storytelling. Cool. So it was how different um, transformations of technology in the film industry changed Hollywood and changed the course of filmmaking. So we started with sound, which would have been the first big technological innovation. So, you know, in the 1930s, we, we kind of studied that era of film before there was sound and then after, kind of seeing how it changes the landscape, both in popular cinema and, and less popular. And then we got into color. I mean, sound was in the 1950s and then color kind of came around in the, you know, early to mid-1930s. And we kind of studied. It's a really cool way to structure a film class. Right. And it, it was... It was really incredible. And then 3D and then widescreen too. And the professor was, uh, was that kind of something that propelled you too? Because I know for me, that's like everything in a course. Yeah, the professor was kind of the combination of serious about film and you could tell he was passionate, but it wasn't this like, here's my information, go off with it and do what you will. Yeah. It was really, um, he was funny about it. He interacted with his students and it was the biggest one of the biggest courses Wesleyan offers is about 200 students big lecture wow. every every student needs to take it to be in the film major or a minor actually I'm not sure about minor but I remember that I felt you really compelled by filmmaking because it was it wasn't like I was going to Wesleyan and they were like this is how you edit this is how you right. shoot film this is how you write film it was really about ways of thinking and I was really happy to talk about ways of thinking rather than what's technical about film mm -hmm. for me. So that was kind of the, what I was expecting from an education like Wesleyan's where it really doesn't put you in one box and you can kind of still spread yourself out. So I knew that taking film classes and then taking English classes and whatever I did, it wasn't that I necessarily wanted to be in film, but it was that it was really the way of thinking about film. I felt like would translate to almost anything I did, even if I went into English or went into government, that it was, th those were the kind of courses I was looking for. So are you still double majoring with English and film or now all in with film? So no longer, at least at this point, I don't think I'm going to major in English. I think film I am going to, and then I might add a government major or cool. they don't have a minor. So I have to kind of think about yeah. how... Um, I want to go about that and I don't have to declare for another few months, but I think for English, I just, it's more of a passion 
and I'm not sure, and I, I might want to go in English in the future, but especially with my magazine and everything that I felt like I wanted to do with English was something that was more of a labor of love just as a passion rather than something I wanted to do for the yeah. rest of my life. So tell us about your magazine and go, going back to my original question of being raised by writers. So what was the, what was your relationship to writing and literature growing up and how did you get to this place you are now where you have a magazine and it is a passion of yours? Yeah. So I think it, I mean, it didn't dawn on me that I was around great literary figures until I was at the end of my high school chapter of my life. I was going into my senior year of high school at Millbrook and I had a summer free. Basically I applied to three or four jobs that I didn't get any of them. And it was at the point where I was approaching late June and I was like, okay, I don't have anything to do. And I remember we were flying to Aspen, Colorado the next day because my mom was going to be a part of the Aspen Word Summer Writers Conference, which has also holds a bunch of her friends and a bunch of the people that I had known throughout my childhood. And we were sitting around our kitchen counter before we left. And my mom was kind of talking about like, Jacob, we sh you should do something this summer. I basically said to my mom, can I just read all summer? And I mean, so to kind of backtrack a little bit, I really started getting into reading probably just that spring. I, I don't know. So this is your summer before college? Uh, no, before senior year. Okay. I don't know why um, I thought you were 17, by the way. <laughs> so this is when you were about 17. <laughs> this is when I was, yeah, I would have been I just kept 17, you there in my mind. 18. So I turned 18 that summer. And I remember that that spring while I had been at Millbrook, which is where I went to high school, I felt that I was starting to get into reading it. I don't know why it started with this book, but I read for fun. I read a girl on a train by Paul Hawkins okay. and it like, I don't read that much. And I just bought it because my friends were telling me about it and I read it and I loved it. And I think from there, I just started reading a book and just, I always had a book in my hand from that moment on. And I don't know why it started with that book, but I remember it just kind of spiraled from there. So now it's the summer and I've kind of started to be interested in reading more what was your parents' reaction to that? And kind of cool that they didn't like push that on you because I feel like it could have gone either way. Like you could have, it's interesting that you are who you are and, and make this magazine because I feel like so many people in your position, if their parents had been pushing this on them, they might've rebelled and like not at all gone in this direction. Look, I remember my parents, my parents did push me on reading sometimes. And I think at some point they must have been like, Jacob's just not going to be a reader. We should stop or let him figure out for himself. I mean, it's also Good like, for them. <laughs> it's like food. I mean, right. my, I was the pickiest eater for my whole life. And I remember that they would always just like, you know, they'd comply and I wouldn't eat whatever they put down. I'd keep eating like chicken nuggets and mac and cheese and stuff and pasta. That was about it. Mm -hmm. And at some point my parents, I think, realized, oh, he'll survive. It's okay. We should just stop pushing it on him to eat other food. I cried when I had to eat broccoli and I made my dad do 30 push-ups before I even ate it because I didn't think he could do it. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to eat broccoli unless you do it. And then he did it. And then I had to eat broccoli and I cried. But then it was, I think at the point where my parents were like, okay, he's at an, of an age where whatever we say is not going to do much. So let's just let it happen. And as I started eating more food, I also started reading. Not at the same time. It's just different 
there's some more kind of processes for how I was growing up. But I remember that my parents just kind of stopped trying. They originally were, you know, I had to read uh, Catcher in the Rye with my mom. And my mom and I would just read it like going to bed and I just despised reading it. And I read it later for school and I loved it. But at the time when my mom was reading it to me, it was just not exactly landing what I wanted to do. I would rather be outside or like play video games pretty much. And I think it was a pleasant surprise when I started to read because I think throughout my whole life, I wouldn't. And at some point when my mom and dad found out that I started to read, I don't think they had a surprise reaction, but I think they were finally happy that I was starting to read. (laughs) So you read Girl on the Train. What was next? When did you really pivot to it being something that you're so passionate about now? I think from there, I was like, okay, I'm going to read all summer. And when I I got to Aspen and I was still thinking about my summer project, you could call it that. And I was meeting all my parents' friends who were writers. Richard Russo was there and Jericho Brown and a few other writers that I both knew from my childhood and also I just met when I was out there. But and you'd you know, read their work by that point? No, I hadn't. I think... I started reading their work after I met them. Mm-hmm. And it was that summer that I really started to read their work. But I was in Aspen and I was realizing when I was thinking about, you know, reading and continuing to find a way to like include that in my life, no matter what, I started to realize, oh, I'm in the inner circle in some way because, you know, there's these students there, but I'll go out with my parents for dinner and they'll be at the faculty dinner. And there are all of these incredible writers all lined up on a table. And I realized that I wanted to get to know their work more. I think those were that was the moment when I realized that it was time to kind of understand both how they intersect in their lives and also in their writing. Yeah. So the next day, I remember I was sitting out by the pool and I was thinking about how I was going to make this more of a project because just reading felt like oh, I could read something and forget about it and then not think about it again. Or I can turn something into a project where it becomes an interaction and it becomes something that I use the privilege that I have been around some incredible writers to formulate questions and ask them. So I had no clue from there. From there, I just was like, oh, how about I interview them about one word? And that just came out of the blue. We were driving back from Aspen to Denver and we were on the highway for a really long time, like windy roads going into Leadville and out of the mountains of Aspen. And I thought about how I was going to do this project. And I said, I'm going to start a literary magazine. And my parents were like, that's not a literary magazine. Just asking writers about one word. Um, And I think they'll even admit that they were very, very skeptical when I was talking about what my idea for my magazine was going to be. I don't think they, I mean, it was more of like a, oh, this is a kind of crazy idea. I don't know what's going to come of it because there was no organization. And I realized that the organization was just one word. And it was about interviewing different writers about the word. And then my mom was like, how about you interact with it? So I had the idea that they would respond to 
my email of a question. Um, and the first question was, what is, what is your perception of perception? So the first word was perception right? for the first issue. That I also came up with in Aspen. So this is all over five days and I had no clue what Isn't would come funny? out. I feel like that's how great ideas come, you know, like quickly and. Yeah. And I had no clue. It was like, it, for me, it wasn't a literary magazine. I was thinking about it as I have it on the covers. It, it's a literary endeavor. Because, you know, when you think of a magazine, you think of submissions and you think of writing. And um, I hadn't actually read any other literary magazines up at this point. The only one I knew was a friend of my parents who started the writers conference that we do in Italy every year. Hannah Tinti had a magazine called One Story. And I really didn't want her to think that I was like, oh, yeah, one word. Yeah. It's going to be the same thing. It's And... <laughs> I talked to her a little bit about what I had for my idea of the magazine, and she did my first interview for that, too. That's great, because um, you like got her blessing, and then you could take that anxiety yeah. out of your mind. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think I was really anxious that she would be like, oh, yeah, you're just copying. I mean, it's like She was your expander, is what I'd say. A mentor of mine calls this an expander, where someone shows you what's possible for you, so you can like see to believe that it's something you could create. And if you hadn't originally known about her magazine, maybe the idea wouldn't have come to you. And it's just like a part of creativity. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, the biggest thing is that one story and one word are, first of all, one story is this highly loved magazine that is about stories. And it's about writers submitting pieces of work to their magazine. And my magazine is all about giving a word to a writer and see where they go with it. It can be, you know, like someone would take it in 50 sort of, right? Right. They take it, take it in so many different directions. I just got the, I just had the anxiety mostly just because it was called one story. Right. And it wasn't like, there's nothing, they have nothing to do with each yeah. other. But it was just funny. I know that feeling. Like I had a podcast that I wanted to make that I haven't even done yet, but it was just the same sort of format of a podcast that a friend of mine had. And I just completely different but I had so much anxiety like I love this person so much and just because it's in the vein of sort of being the same I want to like call and get your blessing and I think it's just like a very human thing to be like is this okay you know yeah and especially was really grateful to Hannah because she she was one of the first interviews I did and I had the idea that I would read I do a few interviews and I read their book before I did the interview so the three that I did for one word was I started with Hidden Figures by Margot Lee Shetterly, who was at Aspen Words and she was really gracious. And I got her email and was like, maybe I could ask you questions at some point. And this is still before I had any clarity about where this magazine would go. So I got home and Hidden Figures was the first book that I read when I was thinking about the magazine and it started from there because all of her book was about influences. It was about these African-American women in the space race. And I was really interested about it because I had watched the movie first and then read the book. And I was interested in, especially because she has a personal connection to these women's stories because she grew up in a similar area. So I was really interested in how for her, there was this and she was maybe not knowing at the time, but she was very heavily influenced by them. Same for me, it was that I was heavily influenced by these writers that I, it was more of a subconscious influence rather than something that I was, oh yeah, I'm being, this is how I'm influenced by them. And I didn't have the words to describe it. So I was 
I used hers as this idea of why I did the magazine in the first place. I had this idea that she would be able to kind of provide me some clarity about why I'm doing it too, Mm -hmm. even though her subjects are much different than mine. And the idea of how really interconnected we are through our stories and through perception. And as I keep on doing more words, as I hopefully do this for many more years, the idea that different words connect with different people in different ways, but they all are connected to it. So from there, I read Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See, and he was somebody I had met previous March. And I read that and I was like, this guy's a genius. His story was like, so overwhelmingly beautiful to me. And I was like, I didn't look at him that way when he was in Italy. I just looked at him as this is this dad with his two kids out in Italy. And I didn't know his writing. And then I read it and I was like stunned by it. So a lot. And then a lot of what I asked him was similar questions about influence. And that was kind of what I wanted to talk about was kind of the idea that we're all influenced subconsciously. Yeah. So these are the, so the first one was perception was the word. And then the second, the most recent one is influence. So how did you come up with each of those words and why did you choose them? So I think perception and influence were both on my mind when I was creating the magazine. Mm -hmm. So perception was how we see the world. And I was curious about how these different writers saw the world and how it was, I guess the writer's life. And then you have the books that they write. And then you have the in-between, which is so undefinable in yeah. some way. Because you're talking about how you do you translate someone's life, and in this case, perception, onto the page. So I was curious about how they interacted mm-hmm. with each other in the gray area in between them. And then influence was the reason why I started this magazine in the first place. And it was... This idea, I think I write about this in the magazine, is that there was this idea that there was a crisis of influence for me. And I was so worried that I was like growing up too quickly in some way and that I wouldn't have time and that I wasn't cherishing the moment enough to be influenced by what was around me. And I was curious about how a wide variety of writers dealt with the word influence in their work from a first time writer like R.L. Kwan, who did my magazine, and uh, a more seasoned writer like Jess Walter or Meg Wallitzer. So I really, I think I had the idea that there would be a wide array of writers for that issue. Cause I was really curious about how our influences evolve and where they take us because I was so worried that my influences or I wasn't, I guess I wasn't cherishing my influences enough. Mm, how um, so? What do you mean by that? Especially in the idea of a preparatory boarding school. It's supposed to prepare you for college. Mm -hmm. And then you go to college and the goal is to prepare you for a life of meaning that you take wherever you go. And what I realized was that there is no, in those terms, there is no place for what we do with the information that we learn. I think it's interesting that you're in this, and you talked about this a little bit, you're in this interesting position in your life where you knew writers before you knew their work. And I think that's kind of rare, but also I feel like I've experienced that before, not being in at all in your position, but it's really cool that you took that privilege and made something of it. And I think that's really beautiful and wonderful, but I I relate to that feeling and that curiosity of like, what happens in the in-between space if someone makes this great art? And that's, I think, what you're talking about. And 
I feel like to me what you're saying, and tell me if this is wrong, it's like you wanted to figure out like what your in-between space was and what your influences were and what you were going to create from that. Because I really do relate to that. I feel like I've found many authors where I've listened. I love listening to interviews of people and I love, I'm sometimes more curious in the artist and the art itself. And I'll go backwards kind of like you, not because I was around them, but because I was interested in them as people on like, I'll hear someone on fresh air and then I'll be like, Oh, I want to watch everything they've made. I want to read all of their books. But I was first fascinated by them as a person. And so it's like, and sometimes it will be the other way where I'll have a piece of art that's very meaningful to me. And then I want to know everything about who made it. And I, it's, you know, kind of a chicken or the egg thing. And I feel like that's, what's so cool about what you do. It's that figuring out that in-between space of an artist because, and I'm wondering, you know, not to like psychoanalyze, but I feel like you were around artists and always in the in-between space. So maybe that's where this sort of comes from, you know, like a fascination with that. Yeah. I always felt like we gave, I always, I always felt like people give the in-between space so much, or they try to separate it from the author yeah. in some way, or they try to separate the author's work from the author. Yeah. Because I realized slowly as I remembered getting to know these writers throughout my childhood that they live with these characters that they create on a page, both in fiction and nonfiction, but more stunningly in fiction, because they're these worlds that we create in our own heads and find a way to process them and put them on a page. But the processing part was what I was really curious about Yeah, because the idea of having people respond to my magazine was that they were just responding to the in-between space that was both influenced by their writing themselves and their life. Yeah. And it was the idea like of a Q&A is that we have time to understand a, the writer processing their own work and their lives in this space of that you don't get in a piece of work that they're actually writing on because it's so curated. Right. And these emails are, you know, a lot of them don't have that much time to give me obviously because they're busy in their lives and writing and trying to make a living as an artist, which I understand is very difficult, but the idea that they give time to, especially it means a lot to give it to me as somebody who's trying to process his own life and his influences. I always really felt grateful about it because it felt like I had this time to interact with a writer when they were not worrying about paying the bills or yeah. worried about writing their work and, you know, their routine. And, you know, all these writers have different routines. Some get up at six in the morning, some write at night. It was this time that I felt like I had just together. And the idea that, especially throughout my childhood, is that I had so much time with these writers outside of their work, and I didn't even touch their work. Right. So I understood them as people who are just relating to each other and their work and their lives and and having time to, like, understand that and understand them as, as friends and people rather than just having somebody come up to them at a signing line because people see these faces everywhere. Right. Especially if you're a writer, I see my mom on tour and I understand, especially when I go to other people's readings now that they're just not going to remember you. And that's not the point. You're not going there to be like, Hey, remember me? But some people do ask, remember me. I was at your reading last week and no one will remember it. But the idea that you have this time with a writer and I realized that I had so much time with writers, not like just in a signing line, but I had time with them at a dinner table or on the beach playing football. And the idea that like, 
I wasn't throughout my time with them. I wasn't taking, I, I wasn't trying to take advantage of their time. I was just trying to get to know these people, not writers. So I was trying to kind of under, at least try to find a way to, through my magazine, interact with them as, as people and also as their work and how it kind of shapes the in-between of their lives. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So when you were a kid growing up, did you, I'm sure you had like a vague understanding of what your parents did, but when did you realize that your parents were artists and how did you interact with that? I would say, I would say around the time that I was doing the magazine Mm -hmm. and it was late. It was really late, mostly because I think I just took it as this is a part of my life. And I was also, I think, especially in, I remember in high school, I would be with my parents at writers conferences and I would see my friends, especially this is when social media is becoming, you know, this mega important part of our lives (laughs) and influence. Yes. (laughs) I feel like I would see my friends who were like having these classic teenage experiences of like drinking on the beach and like, you know, going clubbing or yeah. being with their friends in all these different places and going on vacations and, and like doing stupid things that teenagers do. Um, and I, yes, I have had time doing that as well, but before I think I was looking at that as I want to be there and not with my parents, with these adult writers mm-hmm. all the time. And I remember the feeling of seeing people and seeing my friends just with each other. And I felt like similar pit in the stomach like I did when, you know, the only the only child question when my friends would leave. It was a sense of I'm in this adult world and I'm missing out on growing up. And then I think when I, you know, turned 17, 18 and I started to read a lot more, I was like, this is a position that not many people children get to be in or teenagers get to be in especially at a time when our brains are developing and we're being influenced every day the idea that I was wasn't just being influenced by the world around me and my parents but I was being influenced by you know Pulitzer Prize winning successful incredible writers who have all given us a gift and shared their words with us I didn't really appreciate that until I was not feeling the FOMO anxiety of being with my friends because I realized that in a lot of ways I was really privileged. In it's that sense. cool that you saw that so early, you know, and it's cool that you were able to see that and make work with that. Did you think that you wanted to be a writer and do you, do you write now? What is your relationship to writing? Is it something I wrote a book about journaling. Do you journal? Do you write? Do you obviously read a lot and in interview. So the idea of, I think I'm going to go back to writing more. I think the idea of influence, and it was something that, I think when I came up with the word influence, it was when I was not writing at all. I was just reading. And I was reading, you know, a book every two weeks. And I wasn't writing anything down about it, but I was just reading, 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 you know, any second. I basically said, Instead of holding my phone in my hand and having my phone in my hand every single minute of the day, I should just hold a book and carry a book with me. So I always have a book with me. I don't what do think, you have with you right now? See, I got Americana, which I just started and I'm loving already. And then I'm reading in pieces. I'm reading uh, Murakami's 1Q84, which is this massive 1200 page book that I've read the first book of. Which is, you know, the first book seems being heavy to carry around. <laughs> yeah, it is. 
Okay, but go on to writing. Um, so so the idea is of it? like holding these books was that mm-hmm. I was carrying influences. Yeah. And I wanted to like, the crisis of influence for me was that I want to be reading. I want to make up for all the time that I didn't read during childhood. Like I got to do it all now. And You have plenty of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that I realize that like, I see books in a bookstore. I'm like, I read that, 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 and that. I'm like, oh, okay. I've already read just as much as I probably could have during my childhood anyway. Totally. I got to the point where since influence was nagging me, I wrote, or I did one word as a way to process a year and a half of my life where I was just reading all the time. And I came up with that word in, um, let's see, it would have been a little over a year ago now. Um, maybe 14, 15 months. So throughout that time, I, I threw out the first issue in five months. The second one took a year because I think it took me a while to understand how I was being influenced. And the idea is when I published one word, I realized that I wanted to keep reading and keep being influenced, but I was at the point where I had done what I wanted to do, which was process and now I was kind of ready to kind of share my own work, mm-hmm. which I've been doing more of this spring and more memoir than cool. fiction. And I think I want to start writing fiction again, just because I haven't done that in over a year. And a lot of what I do create is film and music more than, than writing. Um, but it was really about influence in everything. It was about influence in music, like listening to 50 albums a week or whatever or watching a ton of movies or watching a ton of TV shows. I got to the point where I stopped creating at all, stopped journaling. I just wanted to like soak in a lot. And then I think by doing that, it's allowed me the space to create again and start journaling again and kind of picking it up. But I was at a point where I think I just stopped altogether. So I'm really interested in like producing music and... I think that's how it goes for me too, there's times when you're taking in work and then there's times when you're making work. And your mom has this quote that's really stuck with me. I think I quote it in my book actually, where she says she doesn't know what she's thinking unless she's writing. And that's very true for me. And I think a lot of people, a lot of us, I'm a verbal processor. I don't know if it comes from being an only child or like my astrological sign or my Myers-Briggs or what, but I find that which is probably why I record most of my conversations or some of them. But journaling like allows me to do that by myself. You know, when I can't call a friend or I can't do a podcast, it gives me kind of a hit of that. And memoir writing is, um, I think, looking through the world as if you're going to write an essay about it or as if you're going to share it is, it makes me as an only child feel less alone. You know, I think it can be, it can be lonely to be an only child as you grow up and spend less time from your parents because, you know, you have your parents, but you don't have that like closeness with another human being, which is, I don't know if this is the case for you yet, but I think it probably will be increasingly so when you get older too, your friends become much more, at least for me, more cozy, like more, I feel like a loyalty and a connection with friends that I'm not sure that I would if I had brothers and sisters. Over here at Let It Out, we are on the go, and that's why we love Care-of Vitamins, one of the reasons. Care-of is a monthly subscription vitamin service made from effective, 
quality ingredients personally tailored to your exact needs. Here's a big reason why I love them. They have a quiz that you go to their website and take. It's fun. It's online. It asks you questions about your health goals, your lifestyle choices, how often you're going to the bathroom, how much you're sleeping. It takes about five minutes, but it reminds me of the quizzes I would take in like Seventeen magazine. And I love me a good personality quiz or a health quiz. 90% of people fall short of the FDA's recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient. And Care-of's quiz can help you identify the vitamins you need to get back on track with feeling your best. I love them. They're delivered right to my door in these easy to remember, very beautiful packaging, personalized containers, these daily packs. They also have a new delicious nutrient packed quick stick powder that can be added to your monthly delivery for an extra easy boost whenever you need it. Very cool. Again, I love using them. I always toss them in my bags so I can remember to actually take my vitamins during the day. And they're great for travel. And I've actually saved money using Care-of than I would have used buying all the supplements that I needed to take. And here's another update. I have taken the quiz again, and I highly recommend, you know, if you've been on Care-of for a while, take the quiz again and see where you are today because I've completely changed out some of the vitamins that I've been taking over the time that I've been using them. So if you want to try them out, for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit takecareof.com and enter the code let it out at checkout. With your mom being a memoirist, was that something that you were aware of growing up and that she was writing about you? Have you read her work? Is that a conversation that you guys had? I have read a bunch of her work. There were a few books that my mom didn't want me to read for a while until I was of a mature enough age to read it, especially with Slow Motion, which is a book that she wrote when she was my age. Or not wrote when she was my age, but she lived lived when she was my age. And I think she felt that throughout my childhood. And she, you know, she's never said, don't, you can't read it. She's, you know, she'll let me read any, I I can read it if I want to, I can buy it. I have uh, my own personal income and my own time and it doesn't have to be a secret or anything right. but like i think it there were times where i realized that my mom was writing about our lives subconsciously and i think it didn't hit me f- like until i could process it when they were like with devotion it's a question i asked my mom about like spiritual questions yeah and that became a book you're like a major character in a lot of her work (laughs) which is insane to me still especially when people come up to me at readings and they wonder about what it's like to be in your mother's work yeah it has Um, to be an interesting thing i hope it's okay that i asked about it. oh no of course i i'm i'm really open about how my mom writes about us um and i did have an interesting moment just a second ago Don't forget what you're going to say. I'm sorry I interrupted. But I was just like, this is so funny. This author that's so meaningful to me. And I read your mom's work when I was in college. So like 10 years ago. And now this character in this author's work that I am so fond of is sitting with me in my room. You know, it's just like a kind of having like a interesting moment. But anyway, go on. Please, (laughs) I hope you didn't forget what you were going to (laughs) say. No, it's funny. I mean... Like life is funny, you know? New York is funny because you can just like meet people and see people and like your life is funny. And I think that's like kind of what we've been talking about this whole conversation. It's like, 
we're all just people. And like to see these authors that you were around and like, here I am. And like, I met your mom at a book signing. And then now here I am with you. And it's just like, yeah, I was having this conversation with a friend about celebrities last night. And we were just saying that it used to be something that was so, especially growing up in the Midwest with like Us Weekly around everywhere. It was just like such a big deal thing. And then now that I've been in New York and I've, I've talked to people and I've met people, I'm just like, we're all just people, you know, like we're all a mess. It's like, and I feel like that when that can be, when that veil can kind of be lifted, you can just start connecting with people and start to gain wisdom from people that would be harder if you were kind of putting them on a pedestal in a way that just making yourself different, you know? Anyway, but go on. I hope you're, you're going to say something. No, it's interesting. Like the idea of I feel like if, you know, I'm not sure if you felt that the first time you met me, but the idea of like, oh, I'm meeting a character at first. Right. Like initial, you're like, oh, I know the only, I mean, besides social media, because it's so readily available, the only thing you know, or someone would know about me would be through my mom's work. Right. Not, and it's not like, you know, it's not really, I like to think that my with my mom's work, it's not that you necessarily know about me, but you know about how my mom and I have interacted with each other throughout the different topics of her book, especially with inheritance. You know, it's, it's, I guess probably the biggest part of my role, I guess if you can call it a role in the book is that I find out about it. Right. And it's different for me because I'm a 19 year old, or at this point, I'm 17. Maybe that's why I thought you were 17. Yeah, there you go. I'm 17 I just in kept you in inheritance. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't grow from that moment until yeah, I found you're just... out about my biological <laughs> grandfather. <laughs> but I think for me, it was, you know, the idea that I didn't know my mom's right. biological father. I knew, or I didn't know my mom's father, 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 right. father. So I didn't have this sense of this man who I knew my whole life is no longer the title of my father, right. technically speaking. So the idea of, I think me in that book, I I think I probably thought, I, or I remember those moments because that's her most recent book. Right. And there was, I forget, there's a moment in the book where I was like, hey, mom, I think you quoted me a little bit wrong. So I remember <laughs> this really well. Um, and obviously the memoirist's job is not to quote someone directly. Right. And if you read almost any memoir, there's no like direct quotes. They're just their memories that you remember that you try to like formulate into a conversation rather than, you know, an actual point for point conversation. So I think I realized that, especially with this book, this is the book that I remember the most because it's most recent and I'm of an age where, you know, devotion, I was still young. So I don't remember. But the only thing besides, you know, my mom on Oprah, I don't think I remember anything about like the book itself. I haven't, I read it, but I wasn't, that old, I was still probably 12 or 13. But now I read this book, Inheritance, and this is throughout high school. It's within, you know, my mom found out now it would have been three years ago, a little over three years ago. So I think realizing that my life, or at least this was the book that I realized that my life wasn't documented like you would expect to think it would be, like, especially if you, if you read that passage, you might think that, oh, yeah, Jacob probably thinks his whole life is being monitored for a book that your mother's going to write. And that's not what it's like for me. I think I never feel like there's anything 
that I need to be careful of what I say because my mom's going to use it in her next book. But I feel, I feel grateful that she has really graciously and would never, first of all, would never put anything in a book that I would be uncomfortable with. But I always felt grateful because she kind of, in a way, processed my life for me. Yeah. And what she was thinking. And and I can tell you from growing up with her that the way she writes her books is the similar way that she processes her life with me. And I've always felt that way. So it's interesting being like a character. Yeah. I guess. Because that's like that's what it would be in that kind of book. Did she encourage you to document your life with writing or give you any advice on that? I think she would if I asked her. There was never a sense that she wanted me to be a writer. There was never a sense that she wanted me to journal all the time. I mean, besides reading, because that's like a, I guess that's what everyone does. You consider that everyone reads. Or if you're, if you're smart, you read, which is true in our presidents probably, but not with everyone. And especially when it takes time to get to the point where you want to read all the time. So I think my mom is never really pushed me to be a writer. She's really been the kind of figure that wants me to be practical with my life, but she also wants me to do what I want to do. And she knows that I don't want to do what I, or she knows that I don't know what I want to do yet. And she's okay with it. And there's a, you know, she encourages not knowing what to do because she, of course, at my age did not know she wanted to be a writer. And I, th- I think Jess Walter says in my magazine that he didn't even know writers existed. Mm-hmm. Or he saw these as these incredibly fictional characters growing up, you know, rural. So for me, it was understanding that writers, I've known from the day I was born that writers exist because I'm around them every single day. Right. Whether it's with my parents or with my parents' friends. So I think it's interesting in yeah. that sense. It's like what I was talking about with, being ex- you're expanded in that way to like see to believe like where I grew up in Michigan I didn't know any writers I didn't know that was a thing you could do and so it's interesting that you're taking where you are and choosing what you do with it you know you weren't pushed in any direction somebody told me once on this podcast that p- good parenting is like holding a bar of soap you don't want to hold it too tight and you don't want to hold it too loose or it falls and I feel like your parents are like holding it at the right level <laughs> yeah yeah because I feel like it's interesting because I know my mom's writing practice and I know where she writes. I see it every day. I'm usually not in the room because she probably wouldn't want that. Um, and she has her own office in our house and she stays in there when she wants to write and I make sure not to blast music in the morning. But it's interesting because I've never lived a life where my parents go out of the house and go to work yeah. and then come back. And then wake up the next day and go out to work and come back. And then it's the weekend. And then they're just laid back, relaxed, right. you know, by the pool, you know, drinking a margarita or something. But I, I've i always noticed that it's kind of like they're always, I mean, they are always on work mode, both of them. They always are processing or writing or reading or answering emails or paying bills. It's, you know. But what I always appreciated about them was that there is always, it was never, I never felt like I had to like yell for their attention. Hi, mom. It felt like they're just always around. And I felt like that was a part of my life that also like, you know, being an only child, it wasn't that I was alone in my house every day while my parents were at work. When I was an only child, my parents were in the house. My dad and I would go out to breakfast every day. 
while my mom was doing her work and then we'd come back and, you know, she would take some time and she'd like say, let's go for a drive, you know, and it never was the same thing every day, mm-hmm. which has been another incredible thing is I feel like it taught me that like there is no confines of what we can do in our life. And the idea that we can kind of have a different day every day, you know, the, you know, sit down every day, you know, and that was something that growing up with him, I was always very aware of because she, you, you can tell that she's just processing everything around her, even driving. I'm like, don't, please don't like get in like a thought coma and like go off the road. Yeah. Cause she, you know, I thinking back at it, there's a scene in inheritance where my mom is telling or isn't telling me yet, but we're in LA and she is carrying this massive burden that her father is and her father and you know she hasn't processed it all yet and I didn't know that she was going through it at the time and I'm still like wonder if I had any inclination that that was happening because you know I'm with my mom and this is a scene in the book and I feel like she got an email that day from Ben Walden as he's called in the book and I just can't like in some way, I'm like, I cannot believe that actually happened. And that was happening. Cause that was such a, that's a moment that I, or that's a dinner that I still remember. Right. Because it wasn't that far three summers ago. Right. Around this time of year. So it's interesting because I feel like another thing about like writers carrying. And I feel like that sense is that, you know, she was carrying something and I, she was processing something at the time and I didn't even know, yeah. which is something that was cool to understand about writing is that a lot of the times you see writers and you feel like they're fully out of their work, but they're never really out of their work. And that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned from that whole experience with her too. Yeah. Do you feel like you're close, equally close with your, both of your parents? Yeah. We've always been, I feel like we've always been a unit and not only a unit, but I feel like we all work together in a lot of ways. You know, my mom's been super supportive of the magazine and obviously getting the word out is harder for a 20-year-old boys in college. It was nice to have my mom help out with that a little bit. My dad's been equally supportive and I feel like we've all always been close and we all care about each other's feelings to an insanely high extent where I feel that, I mean, we communicate all the time. That's never been an issue and we've always been insanely transparent and I don't think I've ever I don't think they're you know most teenagers or most kids my age would probably say that they have if they could blurt out everything that they have a hundred secrets that they've kept from their parents I don't think I've I don't think there is anything that my parents don't know about me that's really in some sense there probably is I just maybe I don't even know myself (laughs) and I don't have the time to process it but I feel like we've always been an insanely transparent family and Voice out and say like close to them. It's really cool. Okay, let's do some quick fire questions. Greatest lesson that you've learned about family? I feel like you just gave a lot. You sound like you're part of a really cool family. I guess it'd just be the that being truthful doesn't hurt. Mm, yeah. For me. That's a good one. Best thing you've eaten in the last week. Ooh. Last week. I love B and H. I go to B and H too much. We're like a block away right now, and I'm thinking about it. But definitely B&H. They make a really good grilled cheese with a scrambled egg in there. Ooh. I got it by accident once, <laughs> and I've eaten it ever since. That's so good. 
It, did you become less of a picky eater as you grew up? Yes. I, I would say I still prefer mac and cheese. And chicken. And chicken. <laughs> and chicken but um, I'm definitely not a picky. I'll eat anything. But I still prefer the comfort food of a grilled cheese from B&H so much. So, yeah. Favorite place in New York? Might have just answered that. Um, Other than B&H. Other than B&H, not Veselka. I mean, Veselka so good too. I'm trying to think of like when I would come to the city from college or throughout my childhood. Um, Did you come here a lot growing up? Yeah. Yeah. My parents would go twice a week at least. Oh, wow. You know, it'd be like a Tuesday. There'd be a rare Tuesday that we wouldn't be in New York. Um, I'd come with them um, or I'd be at school. I'm a big coffee drinker. I drink too much coffee. What's Um, your favorite coffee shop? I would still say in the city, definitely Irving Farm. I go there too much. And we have one close to my school in New York where I went to high school. Mm -hmm. So I would always come back to the city and I feel like I don't go up to school that much, but I still come to the city. I get Irving. You, I think, might be the youngest guest I've had on the podcast. So I'm going to make you answer a question about your generation. What would you say that, like a lot of pressure. (laughs) Okay. What would you say that you would want my generation and older millennial or people yeah I guess I'm not that much older than you I'm kind of at that weird point where I'm like we have different cultural references though because I'm like almost a decade older than you what would you say you makes our generations different I my favorite quote is that our my generation is I was born in 1999 Mm -hmm. so we're not millennials kind of we're also not gen z which is what we're supposed to be called is Mm -hmm. the sense that you grew up on technology the screenagers Mm -hmm. um you know for me i i had an ipod and a flip phone crazy and i had cds i had a cd player in my car and i listened to cds and there's a sense of being very in between yeah generations and i one of the the great quotes is that you're born before 1995 you are a millennial. If you're born after 2001, you are Gen Z. And if you're in between, you're a member of the Black Eyed Peas, <laughs> um, honorary member. So I think being in an in-between generation is really interesting because there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of criticism on both sides. Like if you're a millennial, there's like a lot of people yelling at you. If you're Gen Z, you're doing a lot of yelling about being yeah. hypocritical in some way because they're like all on their phones. All I the think time. the whole piece of talking about generations is really strange. Like there are great things about growing up with technology that you were able to see a lot more of the world than I was without having the internet in the way that we do now. But also like, I remember a time without cell phones and like that sort of cool too, which you guys don't have. So it's, I don't know. It's like, I, I, when I think about it, I'm like every generation, there's good things and bad things about it. I think like I started with a flip phone and then I got an iPhone in mid middle high school mm-hmm. it goes back to what we were talking about about as people were just all not that different you know yeah i don't know. I, I i think yeah the idea that we're all not that different always makes me think i think the one thing that has angered me mm-hmm. and it angers me especially as as someone in between it angers me at the young, younger generation a lot but it also angers me about millennials too there is so much i don't know i feel like the one thing that i've always been interested in is truth as a word, it might be another word in the magazine. I don't know. But there's a lot, you know, social media is this, it's our world now in some way. We spend more, sometimes 
a lot of people younger than me will spend more time on their social media apps than actually like waking hours than actually present in the world. But what happens is, is because social media becomes this major way to mass mobilize and create awareness of issues, it's been used as something that definitely separates us and actually makes us hypocritical. Especially me, I'm, I consider myself, I mean, I definitely consider myself liberal and it makes me, and especially when we see, I have a lot of, most of my friends would be liberal and you see these posts on social media that are creating awareness for an issue and everyone posts it and doesn't right. know what it means. And sometimes it gets to the point where it's like we're being manipulated in some way. And it's my generation and it's and a little bit above and a little bit below too. But this sense that we're talking about, wow, the media is so untruthful on the other side, but us ourselves are being insanely, insanely hypocritical because we're also sharing things that are totally fake too. And I try not to, I, I, they're mostly social media accounts that get, you know, they're just trying to gain followers. They post something and then everyone likes it and follows them. And it turns out to be a fake thing. Like there's this account with um, saying that they're going to give meals to people in Sudan. And that was totally fake. And everyone changed their Instagram profile um, to like a blue circle. And I mean, yes, it's, it's great to create awareness, but once we start sharing yeah. things that are false and, and untruthful, it becomes really scary. And then I think that got me really into share things that are reputable sources. Like I started reading the Atlantic and they do such a beautiful job with that and uncovering things that we ourselves are being untruthful about. And also listening to people that are actually doing the research with direct quotes. So I found that's also made me want to go into journalism too. In some way, it's another path possibly. I just found that I was getting really angry at people in my generation above and below for using Instagram to share a lot of sources and accounts that don't really do an issue justice that are used for personal gain. So yeah, I guess that's the part. How do you use social media or how do you handle your relationship with social media? I use it a bunch. I, I, I think I recently made my profile public. Um, just because I wasn't like, I don't know, I feel like being on private made me like try to curate my own profile to like exactly what, you know, my friends would want to see. But I just, I try not to think about, I try to separate social media from my own life mm-hmm. or, I tr- or, or try to like, not actually separate it. I try to kind of make or try to reflect my own life on social media. And it's a combination of trying to use it to, share what I'm doing rather than this is my curated profile because I feel that I'm not the first person to say this, but I feel like most people use social media as this curated, this is what I want people to look at me as. And I've tried to make my profile of this is what I'm doing. I, it might not be any of concern to you. If you're not concerned about it, just scroll past the post, whatever, or your story. But I think just using Instagram as a platform for sharing our lives and connecting our stories, I think that's more important. I think that it's, it's best to not overthink it. You know, that's, that's what it is at its best. And I think it goes sour when, for me, when I start to overthink it, what are your morning and evening routines? Are the first few things you do when you wake up in the morning, the last few things you do before you go to sleep? 
my mornings and evenings have changed a lot. I used to get up early in the morning and I'd be at the dining hall at seven in the morning in high school. And I'd, we had, we'd have class at eight. Most people wouldn't go to breakfast. I would go with my close friends and we would get breakfast. And then, so at least now I think I'm, I can get up. Uh, my morning routine, sadly, is hearing my alarm and then going on Instagram for a few minutes, speaking of social media. And I'm trying to really get out of that because I pride myself on not being attached to my phone. But when we're attached to our phones first thing in the morning, it becomes, I don't know, it's like not starting your day well. There's a, like the, forget what speech it was. It was a, a former Navy SEAL gave a speech about making your bed in the morning. Yeah. And it went viral and um, we watched it in class and I was like, I totally don't do that. I still don't <laughs> even after watching the video, but I definitely try to get there. So I think it definitely translates more to my evening routine. So when I go to bed, I I used to like, I think it, not until like two months ago, but as of now, I, I make sure to take out my contacts because I sleep in them too much. It's not good. Don't do that. And adulting. Yeah, adulting. <laughs> I make sure, make sure to get water, drink, drink water. And then I make sure I have a glass by my bed every single night. And then I read for at least five pages. I, I sleep really quickly. I'm the kind of person that can just close my Same. eyes and go I to bed. I could go to sleep right now. Right. It's, <laughs> oh, Not that you're like, putting me to us, sleep. But... Make us jealous. Yeah. Yeah. People are going to be jealous that we can just sleep right away. Yeah. I don't even need melatonin. What's your greatest lesson on friendship? I feel like it's going to be a lesson that I don't abide too much. <laughs> Pay attention. Mm. I found with a lot of people that I've recently been friends with, I find that we're just like in different worlds when we're talking to each other. And I try to formulate my friendships around people that communicate, not just blabber, but more about how we converse about how we're emotionally connected. So I definitely think that you can't do that without paying attention. Yeah. I love that. What we always talk about God, spirituality, what you think happens when we die. And I know your mom wrote a whole book <laughs> exploring this. I'm fascinated by it. And it was really the impetus for her exploring it was you. So I'm curious where you landed and where you are with that now Whoa. that you're an adult. Someone came up to me on the street as I was walking here and was, uh, the first thing he asked me is, are you Jewish? <laughs> and he was clearly Orthodox. Yeah. And was uh, actually, the moral of the story is that I, and you'll understand why I can't complete this thought, is that I really am not spiritual at all. So I was just trying to, in my mind, I was just trying to define a, an object um, of great Jewish importance that I don't remember right now. Yeah. And it basically it sums it up that I really am not spiritual. I definitely think about it. And I ask myself, Jacob, are you sure you're not spiritual today or like at all in your life? And I, I hope to have a connection with it at some point. And I'm not like, I'm not spiritual. I never will be. But I think I'm very much a concrete realist. It comes by my reading habits. Like I can, like Murakami, who is magical realism, really a little bit sci-fi. That that is the furthest to fantasy that I can possibly go. And it's still grounded in real world people and and issues that we have. So I think very much of what I think about is trying to stay grounded here and and I try to not think about what could be 
Um, and I try to think about like what is actually happening. Well, with that, what are you most excited about right now? What's your favorite part of your life? I think I've been grateful to be in New York. I was born here and my parents moved out when we were three. I wrote this in my introduction to my magazine. Basically, I felt like I was too young. And when I was three, they moved out. And I, was, I basically say that I was not old enough for someone to say we shouldn't move. It didn't mean anything because no one's going to listen to a three-year-old about, you know, what's best for the family. It was right after 9-11, I think, too, from your mom's work. Yeah. Yeah. Weird how much I know about your life. Yeah, I know you know everything. <laughs> it's a bizarre world. I, I kind of know that feeling of, like, people knowing a lot about me who listen to the podcast. And it's very one-sided because I just don't know anything about them and can feel really bizarre. So I was talking to a friend last yesterday on, on, on the phone who was with another friend who didn't know me. I was scrolling through my Instagram feed to pretend that he knew me with somebody else. I believed it for a few minutes. I really thought like, oh yeah, like you're, you know, I'm going to this concert later. And I was like, how do you know that? I don't It's okay. so funny. <laughs> Whatever. But that's because of social media. But it's... Um, so New York is what you're most excited about? I don't know. Like it was at least I'd say in terms of what I look, what, what I'm happiest about now is being in New York because it felt like being back home again and living here. But in terms of the future, I think I'm... I'm really excited to, I felt like this summer was, a lot of it was trying to redefine, not redefine myself, but there was a lot that I was in my complete image of myself that I felt satisfied with, but I knew I wanted to change about myself, including my social media use. I wanted to really stop. So I think I met a lot of people this summer that I didn't realize that you need to disintegrate and and detach things about you know about yourself in order to put yourself back together and define yourself into something that you reflects your continued growth. Yeah. So I found that I was by being in New York and meeting some really interesting people this summer. I felt like I really took pieces apart of myself and I really tried to like crumble myself down into nothing in order to like repair myself back to something that was more of the image that I imagined myself to be and what I wanted cool. for myself. And I didn't realize that like, it's not about like taking away everything you've done before and starting new. It's about reshaping the puzzle of yourself yeah. for me. So that was the benefit of being in New York. And I think now I'm excited to use that knowledge of myself and be back in college and kind of see where that takes me. Yeah, that's really cool that I'm I'm kind of in an about to leave New York phase. So it's interesting of like that excitement of coming to New York and the newness and have you read those Joan Didion essays about like goodbye to all that and hello to? No. I'll send them to you. It's really interesting. It's about coming to New York and leaving New York. And yeah, I think, I think you'd like it, especially this moment you're in, you know? Cool. So how, you, and you moved to New York when you Three were- years ago. Oh. I was old. Yeah. Okay. So I was like 27. So you've had your New York experience. Yeah. Right? I think I have more time here. Like I'm going to be back for three months after I travel, but- yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to figure out where I want to live. I'm kind of, have you seen that movie Away We Go? No. It's a good one. It's basically about these two people who are about to have a baby, kind of like your parents figuring out where they want to live. And I feel like I'm doing that except by myself without about to have a baby. And I'm in this place where my work I can live anywhere and I can work from anywhere and that's a really privileged cool thing, but it's also overwhelming to have that much choice. So Anyway, okay, the last thing we always 
talk about is, well, okay, quickly before we get to the the last thing, what do you do when you're stressed or having a bad day? What's like your quick way to to pivot or change? You seem really confident and like, I hope you hold on to that forever. A coffee. Yeah, that'll no, do it. No, like, kinda, <laughs> I mean, sure. It's a drug, like, man. <laughs> it is a drug. I, I used to make fun of my dad because he's like addicted to caffeine and he would, if he had decaf before we went to bed by accident because the waiter didn't understand or register what he was talking about, he would be sick the next day. So I think I, now I'm like, oh God, now I'm addicted. Yeah. God damn it. But I think I really believe that we have way more self-control than we think. We are influenced by our environment, but we also have so much control. There's times when I'm not in control that I'm really bummed because I really find that my theory is wrong, (laughs) I guess, that you can always be in control. But you're in control of, in some way, of, of how you, at least your mindset, I guess. So I guess when I have anxiety, which I do often, I think... Obviously, there's a lot of ways that you believe that you're completely, you know, you're looking at people on the street and it feels like everyone's completely put together and composed. And I feel like sometimes people look at me that way, but there's a lot that I am constantly like have anxiety about about, or I'm trying to like get off my plate and, and people want to talk about it too. So I think the ways that I've learned is that people want to hear you. Yeah. When you're having anxiety or have something that you're like have on your chest that you're trying to talk about, even a stranger. That's, it. You know? That's why all of my stuff is called let it out because I believe that when we share it dissipates, you know, and it can we can feel less alone. Especially with a podcast, which is why I admire the form so much. Um and especially with yours is that there's a sense that you know, I'm saying this and a lot of times it'll be in a conversation setting that everyone's going to forget about the the conversation. Like, I'm not going to remember half of what I told you tomorrow or even in five minutes, but there is something about a podcast and something about a conversation. We can have it. You can have it in film, you have it in TV, but more purely in a, in a podcast is that you're having a conversation that will always be recorded. Like in 10 years, we'll remember this conversation or we won't, but it'll be, on the internet somewhere, maybe, or who knows what the world would be in 10 years. Yeah, well, now I'm like officially, I'm not a millennial, but I guess I've had my first podcast, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm um, proud of you. I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> this is how we end. We let out just a way to recommend things. So book, music, podcast, writer, food, TV show, movie. So first thing that comes to mind, they can be all-time favorites or they can be like what you're just into right now. So I'll walk you through it. Book. Wind Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami. Great. Music. The great David Berman, who is one of my favorite artists. Um, he was in this band called Silver Juice and Purple Mountains. He died um, two days ago. Oh, um, yeah. He's one of my favorite artists. And he's, I would listen to, I think it's American Water by the Silver Juice. It's an album. But Silver Juice, for sure. All right. I'm going to give a it a memoriam. Yeah. yeah. Podcast. Do you listen to podcasts? I do uh, not many. Um, there's this podcast called "That's the Way I Heard It," which is with uh, I forgot his name, but it, they're all these. They're between five and eleven minutes. Oh, great! And they're like little history lessons in some way. Cool. Uh, writer. Uh, Colson Whitehead. Cool. Food. Grilled cheese, scrambled egg. <laughs> Inside the grilled cheese, don't cheat by having it as a side. TV show. Billions. Movie. Force majeure. Mm, I don't know. It's really good. It's a, it's like 
you know, there's four different languages, but it's cool. a it's a really beautiful film. Cool. So the show's called Let It Out. Do you feel like you let it all out? Is there anything that you wish I would have asked that you never get to talk about? Did I squeeze you for all your juice? I do feel like it's all out. It's mostly all out on the table. But I mean, by mostly, I mean, you'd have to ask a specific question that I can't personally think that I would want asked, but yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Jacob. Yeah, and I hope so everyone reads your magazine. And I'm so I'm so proud of you and excited to be friends. And it's it's cool that I met you through liking your mom's work. And now I have a new friend. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that was my episode with Jacob. Keep in touch with him and definitely read his magazine, One Word. Both issues are available and we'll link to them and they're really cool. Obviously, you can hear he's a really cool person. So I have so much to tell you guys, so many announcements. Okay, do you want the good news first or the bad news? I'll get the bad news over with first and tell you that the podcast is going to go on a bit of a hiatus. I know, it's a bummer for me too, but you know, we'll be back before the end of the year in December. But in the meantime, I've got things for you, okay? So first of all, my other podcast that I co-host with Serena Wolf called Spiraling About Anxiety We have a new episode of that podcast coming out next week for you. So you guys, you can talk to me then. It's going to be great. It's a holiday episode, so make sure you're subscribed to Spiraling. It's a great time to catch up on Spiraling if you have not. Some people think because it's a mental health podcast, because it's about anxiety, that it's heavy and have told me that they're like, oh, I'm waiting to get into that. Like, it's the most non-heavy podcast. It's very light. We talk about some deep things, but we do it with a lot of levity and humor and swearing, and it's it's a blast. And Serena and I have so much fun doing it. It's my favorite project that I've done this year for sure, so it would mean a lot to me if you check that out. Definitely listen next week. And if you want to get the show notes emailed to you for these episodes of Let It Out, The link is on your phone or wherever you're listening right now. They'll come right to your inbox. And then that way you don't have to write down like, what was the book that Jacob said? And who's his mom? And it'll just get emailed right to you with links. So that's that. And then the other thing I can offer you, the good news, while the podcast is on hiatus, is that I'm doing a plethora of events. So you can hang out with me in person, hopefully, depending on where you live. Or, you know, wherever you live, I guess. But... Okay, mark your calendars. December 2nd, I'm going to be in Denver doing an event. It's a Monday night at 6.30. It's going to be so fun. We're going to do herbal cocktails, and mocktails, that's the word. My friend Sarah Weinrab is so wonderful. She's an herbalist and a really great friend of mine. I've done her podcast and we're going to have this really fun live podcast conversation And it's just going to be a cozy night. We'll probably do a bit of a journaling workshop with some creative writing prompts. And it's going to be really cool. And I would like you to come if you're free and in Denver. So the link to that is in the show notes. I'm also going to be doing a live podcast episode. And I'll tell you who the guest is. It's Erin Claire. Erin Claire Jones has been a guest on the podcast before. And she's coming back. And we're going to be doing an episode together live in New York the week of the 8th. So keep on my email list and on my social media and I'll give you details as soon as I have them. But that's all I know for now. 
And then on December 15th at the Faraday store on Prince Street in Soho, I'm doing a putting happy back in the holidays, holidays and anxiety event with my friend Kim from Little Space, which is a digital wellness app that I love that you guys have heard me talk about before. And I'm going to be doing a conversation with an anxiety researcher. It's going to be really cool. That's December 15th. And then mark your calendars. If you're in New York, December 20th, I'm doing a really special soft storytelling event breakfast at Showfields on the top floor. That's going to be great. So December 20th, mark your calendars. And then last but not least, last event of the year, I'll be at Kripalu teaching my usual Remix Your Resolutions workshop and I would love to have you there. It's going to be a blast. It's two days, the 27th and 28th this year. Last year, it was over the actual holiday of New Year's Eve. And this year, it's not. This year, it's adjacent to New Year's Eve. So that means you can, you know, do your normal New Year's plans, but also ring in the year slightly early with me at Kripalu and get organized for your resolutions. So I would love to see you there. If you weren't there last year, it was a blast. It's like this wellness wonderland of a sleepover type of a place. Kripalu, you know, this is full circle because the first time I heard of Kripalu was in Danny Shapiro's book, Devotion, when I was reading it in college as a pool monitor at the Michigan State University pool where I read like 20 books in a summer because I basically got paid to read outdoors. I was not a lifeguard. I was just a pool monitor. So if you were concerned that I was not watching the children or the adults in the water, that wasn't my responsibility, you guys. I just had to check people in so I could read at my leisure. That's actually my dream job now, looking back. All right. So anyway, I want to tell you my likes and learns and the emoji for this episode real quick. I've been liking just a plethora of exotic fruits. They're not even that exotic, but you all know, perhaps maybe, that I love persimmons. Persimmons? I think that's how you say them. They're only available in the fall, so it is prime season for them right now, like until, I don't know, December. Definitely get them when they're ripe. They're garbage when they're not ripe, so be careful about that. They might even leave like a weird taste in your mouth, but they're so good with a little bit of, when they're ripe, with a little bit of cinnamon and sea salt on them. Great with like a little bit of nut butter. They're so delicious. I love them so much. Some people hate them. That's not me. My friend Carolina also got me into the Asian pear, which, guys, it's so good. And it's supposed to help with immunity. I'm feeling like I made this another time perhaps or when I used to do my favorite things episodes I feel like the Asian pear might have been something I mentioned years ago but you know I've done 300 of these episodes so I can't really remember anymore my learn for the month man you guys I'm learning so much <laughs> how to be a person doing so much therapy ups and downs and sideways and you know just a bunch of things but the thing I'm learning is just to be 10% better, you know? Maybe I can't get everything done off my list. Maybe I can't complete it, but I can move a little bit forward and that feels better. And I get a slight amount of relief from that just by moving the needle a little bit in the direction that I want to go. And whenever I go off the path that I want to be or I am reactive or I revert into a pattern I don't like, I can begin again instead of spiral downward. 
that's what I'm learning today. Oh, and I'll give you one lesson. I might have said this before again and, and somewhere else or on Instagram, but going back to Danny Shapiro, Jacob's mom, she said this thing that kind of relates to the 10% better and, and just beginning again is just to touch your creative project daily. And I heard her say that once in an interview and I don't do it every day, but when I do, I feel better. And I think I'm a nicer person when I do get a little bit of my creative work done. And I think last week in the Saturn Return episode with Emily, we touch on creativity and consistency with that. So if you haven't listened to that episode, give it a listen. That was a special episode that I really enjoyed. And I would love your feedback on that and this. And I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks on this podcast, but please share it with a friend if you liked it and let Jacob and I know what you think. The emoji for this week's episode is the book. So comment that on Jacob's Instagram, on my Instagram. Let us know you listened all the way to the end. I love you. I'm so grateful for you. If you're still listening right now, subscribe and share this episode with a friend. If you haven't left a podcast review or rating, that would just be really nice of you and I would love it so much. And You could do it for spiraling too if you really like that podcast because Serena and I love doing it and really want to keep doing it and you have no idea how much it actually helps to review the show. So when you get a chance, do that. If you have already reviewed it, thank you. It really does mean so much. Same thing for Let It Out. I'll miss you guys here, but I'll see you in a couple weeks. And if you need me in the meantime, I'll be on Instagram at Katie Dalebout. You know, just feeding the algorithm and uh, posting about the plethora of drinks that I have. I'm drinking currently a very strong ginger kombucha. And I'm going to go back to that. So love you and I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.